Hi, it's Ben Modell, silent film accompanist and historian. And this is the Silent Film Music Podcast. Welcome or welcome back. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for finding the podcast. Thanks for clicking on that link that I or a friend of yours has posted on Facebook or Twitter or has somehow sent you with their watch. This is episode 9, and on this episode I'll be talking about my recent trip to Boise, Idaho, talk about the technique of musical cross-cutting to help accompaniment of early films, part 1 of 2 in my interview with Harry Weiss, a silent film pianist who will be 98 in March and who I've known for a number of years, Music from a recent Silent Clowns film series show, plus news of upcoming shows, so you'll know where to find me. This podcast is produced in association with the Silent Film Sound and Music Archive, which was launched by and is maintained by Dr. Kendra Leonard, who is my partner in crime on this podcast. The Silent Film Sound and Music Archive, or SIFSMA, can be found online at sfsma.org. It's a fantastic online resource to search for, find, and download PDFs of vintage silent film music, mood music cues, cue sheets, scores, and instructional manuals that were published in the silent film era. Just a quick warning to all of you that everything you hear in this podcast, including and especially the music, is copyright 2015 by Ben Modell, all rights reserved. This means you. On February 5th and 6th, I was performing in Boise, Idaho. This is my 6th, I think maybe my 7th time going to Boise. I've been involved uh, with the Boise Philharmonic for about 10 or 11, maybe 12 years. Uh, They've almost every single year have rented uh, or licensed uh, a couple of my orchestral scores for silent films. When we started, they were doing this... Uh, for their youth symphony, the Trevor, the Treasure Valley Youth Symphony. Oh, I think they go by a different name now. And actually, two of the scores that I have available for orchestra were commissions by the Boise Philharmonic for the Youth Symphony. So uh, my orchestral scores for Cops in One Week, I believe, were part of that project. About five or six years ago, uh, they shifted gears, and now the scores are performed by the Professional Symphony's uh, Chamber Ensemble. And every year we do a program called Musical Movies, where a concert is held in Boise, Idaho's Egyptian Theater. And the Egyptian Theater is a 1927 Egyptian-style movie palace. It's been restored, and it has a Robert Morton theater organ, a very nice two-rank eight-manual Robert Morton, and it's the original installation instrument. It's the instrument that was put in there in 1927. I guess, like I said, I've, I've been there five. Well, this may have been my seventh trip. And when I attend uh, the concerts, um, what we do for the evening's event is that the first half of the show, the orchestra accompanies two films with my scores, and then after the intermission, I accompany two comedy shorts on the on the theater organ. Um, on some of the years, and in this year we were able to make it happen, uh, we've done school shows. We brought school kids from the area into the theater. Uh, And when, you know, it's packed. So when you have, you know, 700 fifth graders in a vintage movie palace hearing a real theater organ and watching Buster Keaton's One Week, it's, 
if you know me, um, you know that showing silent films to kids is a big thing for me because it's preservation of the audience, which is really, really, really important. It's so hard to get young people in to watch anything just black and white, let alone tell them it's silent. Um, but if it's a school program, they don't have a choice. Um, and they're there and they discover that how much how much fun silent film actually is. And people uh, from here in New York, in the New York area, who I tell, oh, I'm going to Boise. All they know from, about Boise is, is potatoes. Um, it's a great city. Um a lot, of, a lot of great restaurants and places to walk around and sightseeing and that sort of thing. Uh, there's a lot of history there. Um, last year when I went, I did some research online and discovered that during the silent film era, there were, I think, five movie theaters in Boise. Uh, the, 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 the Egyptian being the fifth built and opened during the silent film era. That shows you how big a city Boise was in the 20s and how much of a demand there was to see movies there. And when I go to Boise, uh, everyone there says, oh, it's so great that you can come here, and you're from New York, and uh, we're so glad you could make it. And, you know, the thing is, there are, there are these three things that I do, among others. One is that I license these orchestral scores. I send them out. They get played. Great. Um, I, I've done school shows, uh, either going to schools or schools coming uh, to places like the Museum of the Moving Image where I go out there and I play um, and uh, there are also vintage movie theaters where there's a theater organ where I can go and play Boise, Idaho is the one place where I can do all three of those things at the same time so that's why I go to Boise every year and I'm so thrilled to get to work with them so I want to give a, a big thank you to Sandy Culhane, the executive director of the Boise Philharmonic Deanna Pham, the conductor who conducted the show's uh, the entire staff of the Boise Philharmonic, the staff of the Egyptian Theater, and to Dr. Paul Collins, who's helped make this happen every year. We're already planning for next year because one of the things that happened is that with our school show, um, we had to turn away a whole bunch of schools, apparently, that, who wanted to come in. So we'll uh, make, that, make that work. I packed everything. I was so good. And then I realized uh, that I left my digital recorder at home. So I was not able to record any of the concert, um, but I recorded my organ playing from last year. So for our first musical segment, what I'm going to do is play you um, the last three minutes or so of my accompaniment to the film Dog Shy, starring Charlie Chase. Here, live in performance from the Egyptian Theater in February February 2014 on a 2-8 Robert Morton Theater organ is the ending of Dog Shy with Charlie Chase. Thank <laughs> you. 
live in performance in Boise, Idaho, at the Egyptian Theater, on their original installation, 1927, Robert Morton, two-manual, eight-rank theater organ. Yours truly accompanying Charlie Chase in Dog Shy. And uh, when I say original installation, I, I mean, I really... It's not only is it the instrument that was installed in the theater in 1927, there have been no modifications to it. Uh, it hasn't had MIDI added to it. It hasn't had any ranks added on or taken out or swapped out. Um, it's uh, it's the instrument that was put in there in 1927. And yes, it needs a little work. Well, it's quite a bit of work like any organ does. But it's a real treat to get to play. Um, somebody told me that I think there's maybe 47 or 48 theaters that have their original instrument installation instruments. So it's just it's a treat to get to to do that and to bring a real vintage, authentic silent film experience to Boise, where we sell out every year this event, and it's so much fun uh, to get to do this. Next up is our segment that I call Rules of the Game. Now, when accompanying a silent film made in the early teens or late aughts, one of the challenges for not only the accompanist but for the audience of today is that occasionally the film will be composed, staged, with the actors blocking in such a way that you're not sure where you're supposed to be looking. Uh, it's a, often a very presentational style of, of, of shooting and blocking the actors, um, and there may be a couple of things happening where your your eyes don't automatically go to where the most important action is actually taking place on screen. Um, it really depends on the director. The the work usually D.W. Griffith. You always know where you're supposed to be looking. If you're playing for an early Keystone, sometimes it's not really clear. Um, Vinograph films are usually pretty good. Sometimes they're you. It, 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 they're not. I mean, it depends on who's directing. Um, especially the very th- films from the late aughts, you really can't tell. I'm, I'm going to play you an example of scoring something directed by uh, a very important pioneer woman director. Um, well, she's a pioneer director, but the fact that she was a woman in this at the beginning of the industry is really, really important. Alice Guy Blaché. And one of the things I noticed about her work, which is really, really good and des- deserves to be seen and shown more, uh, there was a retrospective of her films at the Whitney here in New York, uh, some years back, and I got to play for a whole bunch of those shows and watch all the films ahead of time. And um, I I don't want to... This isn't a, a negative criticism or anything. It's just an interesting anomaly in that um, the interior scenes in a lot of her earlier films have this problem in them, that they're not staged all that well. Um, there are scenes where... Your eyes are going one place, but the important information is somewhere else. Um, the central action is happening off-center frame. And yet, at the same time, any shot that is taken outdoors, any exterior, is it, is so well composed. Um, it's not entirely lateral action. People move through space. There are angles. There are uh, diagonals. Um, interesting uh, compositions things that move through the frame from foreground to background. 
Um, I've never really understood why that is. Um, but be that as it may, uh, accompanying a fool and his money on February 9th, uh, I found myself playing for one of her films. Again, the exteriors are really well composed, and there's a couple of scenes indoors that, uh, not not in all the cases, some of them are, are you're at, you know exactly where you're supposed to be looking, but there's one particular scene where I became aware of this, where there's a sequence where uh, a young man has come into some money, and he's at a party, and people are dancing, and he's talking with people, and a couple of other guys he knows come up with this idea to uh, trick him out of it in a card game. Now, this technique of helping an audience know where to look is something that I came up with uh, early on when I was just starting to play for films at NYU. I remember playing for a film called The Lonely Villa, which is a D.W. Griffith biograph. And there's a scene in it where uh, a mother and her two daughters are in their home. The husband has gone off to work and a burglar has snuck in and the, the mother and daughters are around the uh, table in the, in the living room or the dining room and the burglars under the table and as an audience we can see this um, what I did at one particular class this is a class screening I remember playing for it and playing to the mood of the mother and the daughters having a very nice time uh, continuing from the previous shot and into the next one and I th- and at the end of the screening I remember a few of the students asking the professor, I think it was Robert Sklar, um, where the burglar had come from, because when he shows up next in the film, they, they hadn't really quite seen him, which surprised me. Um, it's hard for me to miss it, because I knew the film, I'd seen it a bunch of times, and I was eight feet from the screen. But I realized that maybe, um, they, the, as an audience of today, without a close-up of the burglar under the table, they had not known to look there, and I thought, well, maybe musically there's something I can do to point the audience. So the next time I, I played for the film, uh, I did that. So in this scene where it's this nice warm family scene, I instead played uh, played something that underscored the fact that there was this uh, burglar under the table. So uh, the idea is that maybe nobody realized what I was doing, but subconsciously they would hear the music that isn't nice, warm, friendly family moment and wonder why, and then their eyes would pick up the burglar under the table. And this never this problem of knowing that the burglar was there never happened again. What you're going to hear now is a recording I made uh, uh, on the recent show of uh, Playing for a Fool and His Money. You'll hear at the beginning a transition from one scene into the party scene. You'll hear a modulation. You'll hear the music that fits the party scene. And once, I think maybe twice, there are little moments where the music shifts away and then shifts back to the party music. Those are the moments when in the left-hand part of the frame, it's like the left third of the frame, the two uh, friends, so-called, of the young men are plotting, but they don't come down so they're closer. They're almost in the same plane as all the rest of the action, and the right two-thirds of the frame are a number of people are dancing, talking, chattering away, so... Because of there's movement, your eyes go there. What I was doing uh, was helping the audience, uh, it's sort of like almost like cross-cutting musically, know to look on the other side of the frame to see what was going on. Here it is live in performance recorded. Sorry, folks, with my iPhone. 
um, from Fool and His Money. in performance at the Museum of Modern Art at the Titus II Auditorium playing the piano for A Fool and His Money an early short film directed by Alice Guy Blaché recorded with my iPhone with a little bass boost uh, done in audacity to add a little bottom to the recording I will try to remember to bring a good recorder more often an example of what I call musical cross-cutting, something done to help an audience know where to look where they may not know. And, and this is something that, that occasionally comes up in films of the 20s. Um, not everybody was super careful, and you want to make sure a contemporary audience who's used to seeing a close-up, a cutaway for every piece of important information, um, and when it's not there, uh, an, a contemporary audience may need a little help knowing where to look. Harry Weiss was the first pianist at the Cinema Arts Center out on Long Island or in Huntington uh, or the New Community Cinema as it was known when it opened in the mid-1970s. This is a cinema where I now have been playing for a monthly silent film series for, I guess, since the end of 2006, so I think this is our seventh or maybe our eighth year. Um, but... Showing silent film has always been part of the landscape at the Cinema Arts Center. So when they started, when they started showing films in just in general, they made sure that showing silent films was part of their programming. And they found Harry, who was living out in Long Island. Well, Harry, uh, Harry, Harry was born in the silent era, and um, there, I always find myself gravitating toward people uh, from another generation or two earlier uh, than me, just because they're a link to the silent film era. There's so much 
that could be learned just because of their experience. Um, and there's just something uh, I, I like about that. Maybe it's just it's goes back to my connecting with Walter Kerr when I was in middle school. Um, so when I started playing at the Cinema Arts Center, I was talking with uh, Dylan Skolnick and his, his father, Vic, who's passed away, uh, about the people who've played there. Uh, before I was playing there, there was a gentleman named Gene Celestner, who I believe had passed away, and Harry Weiss, who was in his 90s at the time, um, still is, uh, was living up in Maine, and I connected with Harry by phone. We talked, uh, full of energy and sharp as attack, and it was great to talk with him. And uh, In 2009, I went up to Maine and met him in person, and we did a show together. I figured, well, he's 93, I better go meet him. Uh, well, he's he's about to turn 98, and I recorded a phone interview with him recently uh, for this podcast, and I'll be posting it here in two parts. So you'll have to come back uh, for episode 10. Here now is the first half of my interview with Harry Weiss, in which you'll hear him talk about his memories of the silent film era and how he got started accompanying silent films. In addition to having accompanied silent movies for many, many years, you were actually around during the silent film era. Well, I, when I was a kid, I saw some silent films. Yeah. Yes, because yeah, you were, what year were you born? I was born in 17. 1917. Yeah. Yeah, my father used to take me on Friday nights mm-hmm. to see uh, silent films mm-hmm. in the local theater. Uh, he liked to watch the uh, what he called the following movies. Uh, uh, next week, uh, our following chapter will continue. Oh, I see. That sort of thing. The, the serial. And I, I saw a lot of yeah. And I wasn't uh, that involved with listening to somebody playing the piano or something like that. I was 10, 11 years old. You mm-hmm. know, I just, I mean, I, I listened, but it, it didn't mean anything to me. Yeah. At that time. Yeah. W- do you recall, like, the, the local theater that you went to? What, was yeah. there an orchestra or an organ? Or what, were, what do you recall what you were hearing there? And the th- it was a regular movie theater. Mm-hmm. It showed newsreels, you know, and cartoons. Mm-hmm. And the silent movies. Yeah. And what, do you recall what quarter, what sort of uh, music was there? Was it a piano by itself? I or don't was it or- remember. I really oh. don't remember. Oh, okay. I don't remember. My guess is probably piano or piano violin. Mm-hmm. You know... Uh, I don't, I don't really don't remember. Oh, okay. And then, and but did you ever have an occasion to go to any of the bigger theaters where they had a larger orchestra? Well, I did see uh, the big parade. Mm-hmm. That was a, uh, a picture, I think it came out in 27? I think 20, yeah, 25, I think, but it ran for a couple of years. Oh, 25? Yeah. Uh, a big parade, and I remember they played it at the Capitol Theater, the movie, movie house on Broadway, mm-hmm. with a large orchestra. Wow. The place was jammed. I was sitting on the steps huh. on the balcony. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, there were no seats available. Wow. And, of course, I was impressed by that, but I don't remember what they played. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Except that when I played the big parade later on, mm-hmm. I did all the World War One songs, you know, things like that, as background. Uh, the, the marches, and uh, over there, over there, the Yanks are coming, that yeah. kind of stuff. And some French French stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, according to what was going on, you know, including the can-can. But uh, that was later on. But when I saw it the first time, I was really impressed. Wow. I remember, I, I think I was, uh, well, I think 
I wasn't that old, was I? No, no, you must have been nine, eight, eight, nine, nine ten. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then, when when did you start? When did you first play uh, a company of film? Oh, oh, this happened in college. Mm-hmm. This is around nineteen thirty-five, thirty-six. Uh, there was a group called the Film and Sprocket Society, mm-hmm. and they uh, they were interested in films, and they they got involved with silent stuff. And they wanted to show a silent film, but they had no way to play for it. Mm. So somebody said, well, get hold of Harry. He's always playing everywhere, all over the place. <laughs> so uh, I said, okay, I'll, I'll play. What, what do I have to do? <laughs> this yeah. my, first, my first adventure. Yeah. They said, what are they going to do? D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. Oh, gosh. That's a heck and of a picture to start with. A film to start playing a silent movie. Yeah. This music for. Uh, so I said, well, what kind of music do I play for that? And they said, well, there's a score. Huh. So you can pick, get the score. I don't remember. I think it was at the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah, if it was that, yeah, that's the year. It's probably Ernest, around the time they Ernest started Ernest renting Rappé. films out. Yeah. Ernest Rappé, I think, uh, wrote a book on all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, with scores. So I, I took a look at the thing, and I said, this is all classical music. Right. I couldn't play most of it. It was too hard for me. Uh-huh. Secondly, if I could learn to play it, I'd have to practice. Right. Well, I said, that's fine. That'll take a lot of time. Yeah. But then when you practice, you have to see the movie with what you're playing yeah. so you can sense the tempo. Yeah. Otherwise, you run out of music and the scene is over. Right. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. And the scene is still going over, or, or vice versa. Right. And then I, I took a look at the music and I said, Gee, this is ridiculous. <laughs> they had a Beethoven sonata for a strike scene. Oh. What is going on on strike? Mm. In the modern version, you know, the, mm-hmm. the fourth uh, chapter of that of the film. Yeah. And I said, no, you want you want stuff like, that, like union songs, you know. Yeah. Or we shall not be moved or something like that. I don't yeah. know, you know. And I I said, uh, I can't play this. So I think I, I'd rather play my own music. Mm. They said, okay, do it. So mm-hmm. I did that. Yeah. So you, you were, at that point, you were, you were mostly an improviser? Well, I did. Everything was improvised. Yeah, but you 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 didn't have a, a classical no. training or anything. No, but you played a lot. I didn't have a classical training. Mm-hmm. I did. Yes. Oh, you did. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I took I took lessons and stopped. Took a lot. Well, it was discouraging because my I couldn't play half the stuff. Oh. I couldn't reach uh, the, the the tenth. My fingers were too short. You mm-hmm. know, it, it was crazy. But the the thing is, what I did with. Uh, with intolerance, is that I looked at it first. Okay. They showed it to me, and then I realized that there was a... Well, you saw, you did the film already, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, oh, sure. All right, well, you know the, that little stop with Lillian Gish, is it? Yeah. I think with inter, the, the, between the stories. Yeah, yeah, where she's rocking the well, cradle. I had a motive for that. Mm-hmm. I replayed the same thing each time. It was... Everything was in the classical vein. Yeah. And, uh... And then I just played accordingly, whether it was uh, Babylon or the uh, or the modern the, the modern thing, yeah, or, or the, Yuga, the Huguenots or something. I played accordingly, mm-hmm. whether it was uh, medieval type music or nineteenth century romantic music or twentieth century, yeah, uh, with the strikes and the fights and whatnot, the all intolerance. I played accordingly. You're right. I don't remember what I played. But sure, <laughs> but I did. Yeah, that was my first attempt. Wow. Well, yeah. as a result of that, 
there was a church in the area of 50th Street, uh, in my area, mm-hmm. where I lived. On 50th Street near 8th Avenue or something like that. Mm-hmm. They had a basement and they showed solid films. Mm-hmm. They asked me to play solid films on a Saturday from 12 noon mm-hmm. to 12 midnight. I did that and I had a friend of mine uh, uh, fill in. Well, I went to supper for a half hour or so wow. at 6 o'clock. <laughs> there weren't many people there at that time anyway. Yeah. And, and I did that for a couple of months, I think it was. Wow. And I played the thing, and, uh, and that was my real start. Mm. That's when I really got interested. Mm. And, uh, but, of course, it was one of those things where you play all day long, and you're playing the same film. Yeah. And you say, gee, I'm getting bored with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I found out, uh, it helped me a little bit, because the afternoon audiences were different from the evening audiences. Mm. The ones in the afternoon were more serious. Yeah. They were interested in the film. Yeah. The ones in the evening were kids out on dates. And silent movies was very funny to them. Uh, oh, yeah. I, this is 1936, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. At that, at that time, They yeah. thought that silent film was real, real corny stuff. Yeah. So they'd laugh at everything. And I always tell the story of, uh, of the Phantom of the Opera. Uh, when she takes off his mask yeah. and covers, she you know, she screams or something, you know, it's, yeah. it's all, big organ, the bang. Yeah. Uh, I would I would play something, you know, uh, on the piano that was discordant, you know, yeah. a screaming thing. Yeah. But in the evening, the kids were laughing at everything. Yeah. So when I got to that part, I mean, I went along with them. I yeah. That part, I played by me and Mr. Shane. No. <laughs> And they loved it. You yeah. Know. The point is, you have to know a lot of tunes. Sure. You have, have a, you know, have to know a lot of music in the background. Yeah. So that was an interesting experience. Yeah. And uh, did you continue playing for for films after college, or did you not no, start up no, again? No, no, no. I uh, well, when I got through, I was I got I was involved in music. Mm-hmm. That was my thing until uh, I got into the army. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I was playing with a, with a jazz quartet. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think I told you those. Stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you had a, uh, you, then you, so you really didn't pick up uh, film accompaniment again until you started playing at the Cinema at Arts the Center. Cinema, at, no, at the Cinema, yeah. Yeah. And that was in the 1970s. I played there for 15 years. Yeah. More, 15 years. And then, of course, the result of playing there, I played at a lot of the local libraries. Mm-hmm. I played at the South Street Seaport. Mm-hmm. I got you know I got a little work here and there playing in different places. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I just did it as a sideline. I didn't make you know big deal out. Sure. Part one of my interview with Harry Weiss. Come back for our next episode to hear the rest of it, in which you'll hear Harry talk about his techniques in accompanying silent films, how he prepares, and different things he does when he's playing for films. For our last musical excerpt, I'm going to let you listen to the beginning of a short film that I accompanied recently at the Silent Clowns film series here in New York City. Playing for a lot of comedy shorts, you have to come up with a lot of themes. I don't mean for each particular film, but for each film. And so, rather than just play um, just basic, you know, one step, two step, 
uh, kind of music at the, for the opening titles or whatever to keep it interesting for me, I'll try to uh, make a theme out of the title of the film. Uh, and this is something uh, that comes slightly from a lesson I learned from from Lee Irwin about uh, writing regular songs and the idea of taking a, a, a phrase or words and listening to the way they're said and the rhythm of it and and crafting a melody that matches that so it's easy to sing. Um, so what you're going to hear is the first uh, couple minutes of my accompaniment to the Max Davidson short, Don't Tell Everything, and you'll hear in the opening... Uh, of the of the of the score, uh, along with the clams that I always hit, it's my trademark. Uh, you'll hear something that looks like or sounds like uh, it could have been a 1920s pop tune called "Don't Tell Everything." Live in performance at the Bruner Walter Auditorium at the Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center, yours truly, playing a Steinway D piano, accompanying Don't Tell Everything, starring Max Davidson, at the Silent Clowns film series on February 14th, where we are doing a salute to the centennial of the Hal Roach Studios, showing comedy shorts produced at the Hal Roach Studios in the silent film era 
program by Bruce Lawton and Steve Massa. Go to silentclowns.com to see our schedule. And if you're in the New York area, come on out. There's great shows. Also, coming up, I'll be at the Palace Theater in Stamford, Connecticut. And that is on uh, September. Boy, am I out of uh, of steam here. Uh, February 22nd at 1 o'clock and 3 o'clock. A shorts program for kids and families. This is the second year we've done this. And a smaller space up on the uh, up on the second floor, but this is an again another original movie palace from the silent era in Stamford. Uh, doing these programs is the brainchild of B.T. McNichol. So thank you, B.T., for thinking this is a good idea and doing it again. B.T. is a, not only a theater person and the artistic director there, but he's a huge Harold Lloyd fan and silent film fan. I will also be at the Osborne in Rye, New York. Uh, not necessarily a show for uh, the public, but it's a senior residence. Uh, I've been doing shows there once or twice a year for the last four or five years, and I'll be doing a Harold Lloyd program there. And I have to tell you, if you're somebody who likes to present silent films to people as an accompanist or as a historian, senior living facilities are fantastic places to present these films, especially when there's a population of uh, people in independent living, people who are much more active and uh, with it, in, uh, in, in the sense that um, they're they just really really enjoy these films so much. And, and the whenever I have a Q and A, um, and I I did this recent, the same thing happened uh, at a senior living facility up in Shelburne, Vermont. Uh, during the Q and A, first question: When are you coming back? And the comment I get from people at these places uh, over and over is. We don't get to laugh like this. So, you know, this is a great place uh, to show silent movies, especially the silent comedies. I'll be there uh, on the 24th. And then on Saturday, February 28th, I will be at Wesleyan University uh, accompanying Seven Chances on the virtual theater organ. I helped work. Uh, using the Paramount 320 samples. And I've been doing shows there, again, since 2006. And this is the uh, film program that Janine Basinger uh, is in charge of. And actually, the very first show I ever did with the Minitzer was at Wesley- was, was at Wesleyan. Um, and it, it just made... I remember Janine was so, was so excited to hear that sound coming out of the speakers in the, in the theater there. So that's in Middletown, Connecticut. I believe it's 7.30 on the 28th. Um, oh, if you're in Florida, pardon my click, i got to go back to my calendar. Uh, on February 21st, Broward, uh, Broward University, uh, they are doing my orchestral scores for Cops and the Immigrant. Uh, so do check that out. Do go to Amazon and buy my new DVD, the Marcel Perez Collection. Uh, it's got ten rare short comedies, five that Marcel Perez made in Italy and five that he made here in the U.S. The films are sourced from the iFilm Museum and from the Library of Congress. The DVD was funded by 153 Kickstarter backers, which we we hit we hit the funding goal within the the initial funding goal within 24 hours. Uh, and because we went over, it allowed me to do one other thing besides the DVDs. I published a book entitled Marcel Perez, The International Mirthmaker. It was written by Steve Massa, 
who uh, has done, who's really been the person um, waving the flag for Marcel Perez for the last five or six years, tracking down his films, tracking down information on his life and career. And he's written this fantastic book that's got more than 50 rare stills and other photographs of Perez's films. Marcel Perez is a comedian and director who is ripe for rediscovery and whose work has a quality uh, that is up there with people like Charlie Chase and Roscoe Arbuckle uh, as, as a com- com- comedian and director. And the films are inventive and well thought out, and you should definitely check it out just, just for that reason. Um, I want to thank you for listening to the Silent Film Music Podcast. Come back uh, for episode 10 for more music and performance recordings, the rest of my interview with Harry Weiss. Do check out sfsma.org, and please go to iTunes and post a review uh, on the page for the Silent Film Music Podcast. I'd appreciate an email or tweet or message over Facebook if you've heard this podcast. Let me know. Uh, you're the ones listening. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Is this podcast too long? Is it too short? Is there stuff that I'm not covering you'd like to hear? Is there stuff I should be skipping? As long as you're the audience who's listening right now, um, I, I would love to get your feedback. The Silent Film Music Podcast is produced by Ben Modell and is also copyright, uh, copyright 2015 by Ben Modell, all rights reserved. Tell your friends. Not about the copyright. Well, yes, tell them about the copyright notes. But tell your friends about the podcast. Post links. Send them an email. Let them know that this thing exists. And we'll see you next time on the Silent Film Music Podcast. This is Ben Modell saying, I'll see you at the silence. <laughs>